First of all, let me say what a delight it is to have all of you on our campus and you honor us by your presence. So thank you for, for being here. And I also want to say thank you to our God this morning because I, I'm just constantly amazed at how he orders things, not only from the, the big things in life, but even the details. And, uh, for example, the ordering of the messages that have, that have taken place could not have been better uh, because last night... Uh, Darren and, and CJ laid such a, a great foundation when it comes to the gospel. And, and it could not have been, uh, the table could not have been set better than to prepare us now to move into the issue of, of mission. And uh, I'm just grateful that, that God was gracious to do that. Now, now let me say this before I, I get into my, my message. Um, Sometimes God calls us to admonish one another. Sometimes God calls us to provoke or, or to stir up, as the author of Hebrews says. And so I want to say in advance that that's where we're going. Uh, sometimes uh, it is said that uh, God calls some preachers to uh, comfort the afflicted. And other times he calls preachers to afflict the comfortable. Well, my assignment, as I believe it is from the Lord this morning, is to do the latter. And so there's a sense in which when I'm finished, I hope that you're uncomfortable. Uh, but uncomfortable in, in a good way. Uncomfortable in a way that will provoke you uh, for the glory of God and the, and the good of the nation. So what I want to do this morning is, is take you to Romans. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 24. The marks of a great commission people. Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 24. And in a real sense, Paul in Romans is, is doing what happened last time this morning. He spends 11 chapters basically developing the gospel. He spends 11 chapters helping them understand why we need the gospel and why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And then after doing that for 11 chapters in chapter 12, he, he begins to talk about, all right, here is our gospel gratitude response. In light of what has happened to us and, and for us in Christ, here is then how we would just naturally respond out of what I love to call gospel gratitude for what we have in Jesus. And as we get to chapter 15, it becomes very missiological. And Paul shares with the church at Rome, a church, by the way, he had not yet ever visited, uh, what is on his heart. Uh, what he would like to see taking place in their midst and what he would like to have from them as he moves on to, to go into territories where the gospel has not yet been preached. And so with that as a, a little bit of a background, look at, at chapter 15 and verse 14. He writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But, and, and some translations even have the word nevertheless, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, let me stop there for just a moment. For the remainder of my, my message and my time with you, uh, every time you see the word Gentiles, I'm going to translate that word nations. 
Because I think it communicates better to us what Paul w- was getting at. We use the word Gentiles today, and we think Gentiles in distinction with Jews and so on. But actually, it's the word ethne. It's the same exact word that in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. It's the same word. And so I'm going to translate the word Gentiles each and every time by the word nation. So one more time in verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus... I make it my ambition uh, to to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and here he quotes from the great uh, servant song of Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, it begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes through chapter 53, verse 12. And this is chapter 52, verse 15. Uh, Those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now. And this is one of the most amazing statements in my opinion in all the Bible. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain And be helped on my journey there by you once. I've enjoyed your company for a while. I want to read a short portion of an article that came out in a religious periodical just a couple of years ago. And then we'll move into our study this morning. The article begins, I write this as my wife and I return from Southeast Asia. We have spent a week with precious brothers and sisters in Christ who are faithfully serving King Jesus in very difficult and for many dangerous locations. These men and women, along with their families, are heroes of the faith for me. We heard story after story of how the gospel is going forth, tearing down the strongholds of the evil one and setting free those who have been captive to sin and the false idols of darkness. With a genuine humility that shone like a brilliant light, one after another, after another, shared what great things the Lord had done and was doing. Even in the midst of personal tragedies and sorrows, and and some of them, by the way, had lost children uh, on the mission field, uh, they praised our King for His grace, His mercy, and His faithfulness. However, one experience was not a good one. I cannot recall a time that my heart was pierced as it was on this night. As we were headed to a restaurant, our driver turned down a street where I was totally unprepared for what I saw. Suddenly, on both sides of the road for at least a half a mile, hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes lined the sidewalks. 
Some could not have been more than 11 or 12 years old. They were actually dressed in seductive uniforms. I will never forget the faces of these little girls and women. Sadness, emptiness, and hopelessness were etched across their countenance. Smiles, if there was one, seemed forced, lacking any sense of genuineness. Later, I was informed that most of these girls and women had been deceived and basically kidnapped. Sex slave traders prey on ignorant and unsuspecting parents, especially in rural areas, promising a better life for their children in the big cities. As I looked into these tragic faces, it hit me. Somewhere they have a mom and a dad. Do they have any idea what has happened to their precious daughters? I was overcome with a sense of sorrow and despair. I have seldom experienced, God, you must do something. We, as your ambassadors, must do something. The lostness and darkness of a world without Christ came home in a new and unexpected way the night I was taken down prostitution row. The need to get radically serious about the gospel and the Great Commission never seemed more urgent. The nations are crying out for hope, and we have it. The nations are crying out for deliverance, and we have it. The nations are crying out for life, and we have it. The nations are crying out for salvation, and we have it. Those words are especially meaningful to me because I wrote them. My wife and I were in Pattaya, Thailand. And we went down that road that night, and I want to tell you, to this day, I still have nightmares. And hardly a day takes place in my life that when I get up in the morning, the thought of those precious girls, as well as those depraved men, does not come to my mind. And I recognize that there's only one hope for those men, one hope for those pimps, One hope for those women and little girls, and that hope is found in the gospel. But I came away with a question that has, again, also haunted me for quite some time now, and that that question is this, will we do something about it? Or will we be content to sit back in our comfortable, convenient Christian culture and turn a blind eye to the massive needs that are all around the world. I was on a committee a couple of years ago studying how a particular denomination could be more effective in fulfilling the Great Commission, and we learned in our research, to my uh, utter dismay, that for every dollar placed in an offering plate in a typical evangelical church, now we're leaving liberal churches off the side because they would not even register, but for those who believe the gospel, for those who believe that we should fulfill the Great Commission, for every dollar placed in a typical evangelical offering plate, only two to three cents on the dollar ever leaves America. In other words, we spend 97 Since on every dollar right here on ourselves. And I just have to believe with all of my heart that that is not the way that our Heavenly Father and that our Commander-in-Chief would order our lives and order our priorities. And so what does it look like for a people to really become a great commission 
army for King Jesus? What will it look like for you, for your church? What will it look like for your denomination, for me at Southern Baptist, to really and truly be a great commission people? And I believe that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 15 some principles and guidelines that can help us cultivate that kind of heart and passion and disposition. There are four of them I want to share with you very quickly. Number one, great commission people will be focused on the nations. Look at how Paul begins there in chapter 15 and verse 14. I myself, he uses an intensive there, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that. And he says three things are true about the church at Rome. He says, number one, uh, you're full of goodness. Secondly, you're filled with all knowledge. And number three, you're able to instruct one another. He begins by saying to this church that I know that you are in the process and that you're characterized by doing many good things. And I think he would commend them for that. And yet I think there's also a subtle warning there in that statement. That is this. If we're not careful, good things can kick to the curb the best things. Most of you are members of churches that don't do bad things. My church does not do bad things. We do good things. But if we're not careful, good things can get in the way of the best things. And we can become busy, busy, busy bees doing much that is good, but neglecting that which is greatest and best and most important. He says, secondly, that you are full or filled with all knowledge. I I think he has primarily in mind the the knowledge of the gospel, but I think he would say, uh, you Romans, you are a a theologically informed people. You are a theologically well-prepared people. And I do have a a basic conviction here, and that is this. I, I, I don't believe that you should ever separate theology and missions. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced the two must always go together in a beautiful balance. One of the things I say around here all of the time is never forget that the greatest missionary who ever lived was also the greatest theologian who ever lived. His name was Jesus. And the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived was also the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived. And his name was Paul. And so let me just say to you, a theology that does not drive us to reach the nations, is a theology not worth having. If your theology causes you to be docile, if your theology causes you to be satisfied, where you just soak it in, soak it in, and soak it in, your theology is not worth spit. You need to get a new theology that is much more tethered to the Word of God. And so theology matters. And I don't think you can be a good theologian without being a missionary at your heart. And I believe all good missionaries will also strive to be good, competent, well-thinking theologians. And so he says to them, you are, you're full of goodness. You're, you're filled with all knowledge. And you're even able to instruct one another. You have the ability to encourage. You have the ability to admonish one another. And so he says, I realize that you are well suited for gospel ministry and you're well suited for the missionary enterprise. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or he is 
an imposter. David Livingston reminds us that God had only one son and God made him a missionary. And so here he says to them, I I hear really good things about you, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to admonish, able to challenge, uh, able to to rebuke in a good way one another. You, You have the capacity to, in a loving way, confront each other and recognize that perhaps lifestyle changes need to take place and and hard decisions need to be made. But, verse 15, but, and as I mentioned earlier, some translations have the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, on some points I have written to you Very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God. Paul says, I don't hesitate to speak boldly. And I also want to say to you, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm simply reminding you of some things that maybe you forgot. I'm reminding you about some things that, for whatever reason, may not be as urgent to you as they once were. Paul knew that we are susceptible to the devil's uh, devious deception and influences so that we begin to uh, distort our values and we begin to lose proper perspective on our priorities. And so Paul says, I'm going to run a risk, even though I've never been there and I haven't spoken to you or met you personally, but I'm going to take a risk and speak very boldly to you by way of reminder. And I do so out of grace. I do so out of the mercy and tenderness and goodness of God given to me as a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in, I love this, the priestly service of the gospel of God. We are all believer priests. We as evangelicals often rejoice in what is known as the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers. Sometimes, though, that doctrine gets perverted and misunderstood because we think it's a doctrine of rights when actually it's a doctrine of responsibility. And it's a doctrine that focuses not upon us as believer priests so much as what we do in service to others. And that's how Paul sees it. Paul says, I I am, I am a believer priest in service to my king, and the offering, I love this, the offering that I bring as a sacrifice of praise to my Savior and to my king, Christ Jesus, is the nations. I I bring the souls of lost men and women as an offering from the nations to my Savior. Now, let's ask a few questions and consider some things very quickly. How many nations are there today? When you talk to missiologists, when they, when they use the word nations, what they mean by that is, is people groups. How many different distinctive people groups are there in the world today? And by that we mean they have their own culture, they have their own language, they have their own specific unique identity. And by the way, if you need help in this area, go to the Joshua Project website. I go to it every day because I get every day the people group, the unreached people group of the day that we pray for. And so I visit the website regularly. I get their daily update on an unreached people group. And so I checked it out again this morning. And here's what it says at the Joshua Project today in the world. There are 16,598 people groups. That's amazing. 
16,598 distinctive people groups in the world today. Own language, own culture, own identity, uh, unique unto themselves. 16,598. Question. How many are unreached? Dr. Ashford earlier in our panel discussion talked about the fact that there are places in the world where we could go today, be dropped by a, by a parachute or helicopter, and we hit the ground and we start walking, and, and we could walk days and weeks and months, never see a church, never, never meet a Christian. How, how many are, are unreached? Let me, let me say it another way. How many are out there that the, the overwhelming odds are, as of right now, they will be born... They will live, they will die, they will go to hell, and we can talk about the exclusivity of the gospel and, and accountability through creation and conscience and all that some other time, but, but if the Bible is true, they will die and go to hell, and they never even heard even one time the name of Jesus. How many are there still on the planet today, 7,165. If you go over to our mission center, you'll see what is known as the, the world mission clock. And it's tabulating who's being born, who's dying, who's receiving the gospel, who's rejecting the gospel. But there's a category over there that speaks of those that do not have an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel and the number as of this morning is 3.68 billion more than 2013 all our resources all our technology all of our churches and more than half the world's population today does not have adequate access to the gospel now from time to time when when we raise this issue i have people especially within my denomination, begin to push back. Uh, you're, you're going overboard. Uh, you're sending us on a guilt trip. And my, my goal this morning is not to guilt you. My goal this morning is out of gratitude to Christ for you to reconsider what really matters in your life and what really ought to be the ordering of your priorities. But, but they'll say, eh, 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 you know, here's the deal, Danny. And I especially hear this from parents whose kids come to southeastern and they get bit by the missions bug and, and they inform their parents that they're changing their course in terms of what they believe future ministry looks like. And it's not going to be going back to Alabama or Georgia or Florida or South Carolina or North Carolina or Virginia or West Virginia or Kentucky or wherever. But no, they're going to go across the ocean among the nations and their parents will send them on a guilt trip. And they'll say things like this. Well, sweetheart, there are lost people in Alabama and there are lost people in Georgia and so on. And look, I know that. There are lost people everywhere. That's not the issue. Now, hear me and hear me well, because this will change your perspective, I promise you, on how you live your Christian life from this day forward. The issue is not lostness. The issue is access to the gospel. People in all those states do have access to the gospel. 
But there are persons all around the world that will be born, they will live, they will die, and they will never even one time hear the name of Jesus. Carl F.H. Henry was the greatest, I think, Baptist theologian of the previous century. He also had a missionary's heart, and this great theologian said, and I quote, The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And the missiologist James Oswald Smith said it like this, No one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had an opportunity to hear it at least once. You might not agree with that, but you ought to think about it. Why why should any one of us in this room hear it twice when there are billions who've never even heard the precious name of Jesus and the life-changing gospel even one time? And John Piper says it this way, We will be worshiping and praising God for eternity, but we have only a limited time upon this earth to engage in missions so that the nations would rejoice and sing for joy. And so, Mark, through a Great Commission people, number one, we will be focused on the nations. Whether you are called by God to go to the nations or not, you will be a part of a church and you will live your Christian life in such a way that the call of the nations is perpetually before your mind's eye. Secondly, we will also be a Christ-centered people. You see that developed in verses 16 through 18. Paul never lost the wonder of his relationship with Jesus. He basically had what I call a double amazement. He was amazed, number one, that God would save him. And secondly, he was amazed that God would call him to be a minister of the gospel. He never lost the wonder of his salvation. And so in Romans chapter 15, for example... If you study the whole chapter, he will refer by direct word to Christ no less than 12 times. He will call him the Savior no less than five times. Look at how he fleshes it out there in verse 16. I am a minister. I am a servant of Christ Jesus to the nations. I am performing a priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the nations would be acceptable, something set apart as holy by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, and notice this, don't miss it, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. It's almost as if he thinks, oh, they they may misunderstand what I just said, so let me clarify it in verse 18. I will not venture... To speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience by word and deed and power and signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul was a a Christ intoxicated man. Paul was so madly in love with Christ and so devoted to Christ, it reordered his life from the day he met him on the Damascus Road to the day he was executed in Rome. Paul knew that as we bring our lives under his lordship and we live and bask in the glory of his person, it's simply going to impact the way we live our lives. Henry Martin was a wonderful missionary Again, in God's mysterious providence, he died at the age of 31. 
Uh, he ministered both in India and in Persia. And, and though he had a brief life, like, like David Brainerd and uh, some others, he was a very prolific author. And, and Henry Martin made this very profound statement. Listen to it very carefully. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. I think he's right. Because our God is a missionary God. Our Savior is a missionary Savior. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Christ, the more intensely missionary we will become. You know, we as evangelicals don't always have the best reputation within the uh, secular context that we now find ourselves. And, and some of it is certainly misrepresentation, but some of it uh, we invite. Uh, some of it we deserve. You know, when people think of what it means to be an evangelical. You know, it would be interesting if you were to go back, for so many of you, to your campuses this next week and just do some informal surveying and just ask people, you know, when you think of the word evangelical, what comes to mind? And it would probably be very interesting, the answers that you would get, and some of the answers would probably be pretty disturbing. And you would say, well, they would be unfair. Well, they may be unfair, but that's still their judgment and that's their opinion. But you know what I'd like to... See, happen. I, I would love this generation to be so radically different than prior generations that when people think of you, they think, you know, that, that's the Jesus people. That's the Jesus people. Oh, they may not agree with all that you believe and think, but they, they see in your lives and they hear in your words that, that Christ is, is, is central and, and Christ is center and, and Christ is everything. And, and you're not known for all these other things, though they may be interesting and important, but you're known because of your love for Christ. Again, the wonderful missionary C.T. Studd said it like this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. The Great Commission people are Christ-centered and Christ-intoxicated in, in all that they do. Thirdly, we will be gospel-saturated in all we do. We've talked about that a lot last night and this morning at the panel discussion, so let me just hit the high points for my purposes. Uh, the word gospel occurs four times in verses 16 through 29 of Romans chapter 15. It's called, interestingly, the gospel of God in verse 16, and it's called the gospel of Christ in verse 19 and 29. And, of course, if you've ever studied the book of Romans, you know that it's a book about the gospel. In fact, if you were to be asked uh, on a Bible quiz or we were to do Bible trivia and we were to say, what is the, the theme verse or verses of Romans? I think if you've studied Romans, you would say, well, that's easy. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, uh, the just shall live by faith. And so there is the gospel in terms of the purpose statement of the book of Romans. So we'll ask again the question that Tony asked earlier. What is the gospel? Uh, what is the gospel? And maybe I can get at it to begin with by telling you or making clear what the gospel is not. You know, years ago, Mark Twain, who really had great disdain for the church... I was asked, uh, what is the church? 
And Mark Twain said this, the church is good people standing in front of good people telling them how to be good. Not. The gospel and the church is not good people standing in front of good people telling them how to be good. Maybe we could say it this way. Uh, the gospel and the church should be uh, sinners standing in front of sinners telling them that they're sinners. Because that would be more accurate in terms of who we are. And yet I think that many in the world today think that's exactly what the church is. And that's what the gospel, the gospel is, a, is a self-help message that will help you be a better, good person. Several years ago, I received a phone call from someone that asked me, and they had the ability to pull this off. They asked me, would you like to meet Billy Graham? I said, let me pray about that. Yes. I didn't pray about it. I'm lying. You don't pray about something like that. You have a chance to go meet Billy Graham. You say yes. And then you say when? Now? Tomorrow? I, I, whatever has to. Well, and he said, oh, no, it'll be in a couple of weeks. But, but I can arrange it. And you say, well, he must have thought you was important. He didn't even know me. The phone call came from his grandson, Will, who was a student and graduate of Southeastern Seminary. And just out of sheer kindness and grace, he called me one day to see if I would like to meet his granddaddy. And, of course, I wanted to meet his granddaddy. So one day, my wife, Charlotte, and I went over to Asheville and up to Black Mountain where he lives. And I got to spend two hours in the living room of Billy Graham. And let me tell you in advance, he was kind and gracious and loving. You know, sometimes when you meet one of your heroes, that you've never met, but you get to, you're a little afraid. You know, God, I don't want the bubble to be burst. Oh, no. He was, he was more than what I could have ever hoped. Just, just the epitome of a faithful, loving Christ follower. So I had two hours to talk with him. And while we were there, I, I did raise a question that uh, had, you know, just of interest to me because of hearing things he'd said over the years. And I said, Dr. Graham... Uh, I have heard you say on more than one occasion that you believe on any given Sunday half of all the persons that are in evangelical churches, not just churches, evangelical churches you believe are lost. Do you still believe that? Do you really believe that? And in a very gracious, gentle way, he said, uh, no, I, I don't believe that anymore. I think the number is much higher. And I said, really? He said, I, 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 I'm afraid I do. And I said, why do you think that our evangelical churches are filled with people who are unconverted? And he says, because they have not believed the gospel. They have not believed the gospel. C.J. articulated in our panel discussion as well as I've ever heard the heart of the gospel. That God in great mercy and love poured out his wrath and judgment on the sinless Son of God, our Savior. He, he, if you like, God killed his Son so he would not have to kill you. And in amazing grace, he offers to you and me nothing less than a free gift that we simply receive by repentance and by faith. But you see, this is where Tim Keller has been so helpful to many of us because he's helped us see the, the real difference between the gospel and religion. 
And he's helped expose, at least for me, very clearly the, the, the false, seductive nature of religion. And, and, and Tim says it just like this. Religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by Christ. The gospel, I'm accepted by Christ, and therefore I obey. And, and brothers and sisters, friends, the, the, the ordering there is all the difference between heaven and hell. I obey in order to be accepted. Well, you'll never be accepted because you can't obey. Not perfectly. No, because I'm accepted in the one who did obey perfectly, I now obey. Out of obligation, no, but out of wonderful gospel gratitude. Religion says, I obey so that God will love me. The gospel says, God loves me, and so I obey. Religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel, motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel, I obey God to get God and to delight and resemble Him. Or to say it just another simple way, the gospel simply says this, the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything, but the person who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. I saw this so clearly a couple of years ago in Sudan. My wife and I went to the Sudan, one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world, we were there to minister for about 10 days, and it was absolutely glorious. We, we, we were part of church planting, and we were part of Bible teaching and instructing and a, and a pastor's conference, and it was amazing. that There were almost 1,500 people who came into the South Sudan. They came from the Sudan. They came from the Congo. They came from Uganda. Almost all of them walked there. Some walked a week, spent a week, walked a week back home. At night, they would just put a mat out on the ground in the open air, and they would lie down and sleep. And in the morning, they would roll their mat up, and they would go about their business throughout the day. While we were there, we helped plant a church uh, with a pastor whose name is Sam. We, we just called him Pastor Sam. By the way, jumping forward today, God has so used this man. He is now a church planter overseeing multiple churches. And also the church that he started is a growing, vibrant fellowship that, by the way, meets under three mango trees. Pastor Sam was from Uganda. And Pastor Sam, uh, when he was about 12 years old, was playing on the outskirts of his village. And this cultic tribe that actually claims to be Christian, this cultic tribe in Uganda came into his village. And while he was out in the bush looking in, he watched his mother and his father and his brothers and sisters all hacked to death and murdered by this cultic tribe. By God's amazing grace, he was taken in by a family that had come to know Christ. They led Sam to Christ. And as a teenage boy, he sensed that God had called him to be a preacher. And so Sam had gone to the little Bible college there in Kajikaji, uh, South Sudan. And we had helped him uh, lay the foundation for a church under those three mango trees. And we were about to leave uh, to come back home. And we wanted to bless we, we just fell in love with him. He, you talk about, you know, having the joy of the Lord. He just beamed with gladness and joy. And, and so we wanted to be a blessing to him. And so we talked to, to one of the 
persons there, kind of in a leadership position. And so as we were getting ready to leave, we, we gathered around Sam and, and we laid hands on him and we prayed over him. And then after we prayed, we said, Sam, we want to bless you. And so here's what we, 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 we've done. We've taken up some money. And we have purchased for you two ox, a plow, and enough seed for you to plow the land adjacent to those three mango trees where you're going to be uh, a new pastor, a church planter. Furthermore, some of us at this stage in our lives have been, have been blessed by the Lord. And so we put together enough money to buy your tuchel, the, the tent, the hut in which they live. And, and by the way, I was with someone that has a ministry in the Sudan. He was just with Sam. Now he's Sam, the church planner, just a few weeks ago. I said, well, how's he doing? He said, he's doing wonderful. He's doing great. I said, has his life changed much? He said, no, he's still single. He still has his two ox. He still has his plow. He has two sets of clothes, a pair of sandals, and a Bible. That's all he has. Two sets of clothes, a pair of sandals, a Bible two ox, and a plow. And he is one of the most happy, joyous, blessed men in Jesus I've ever met in my life. And I learned in watching Pastor Sam that that the gospel at its very roots is simply, if you've got Jesus, you've got all that you need. And I don't care who you are this morning, if you're here and you may be an intellect off the scale, you may have mapped out a future that's going to make you a megabucks man or a megabucks woman, and you may accomplish all of that and so much more, but I want to tell you something, you can have the world, if you don't have Jesus, you got nothing. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? The words of Jesus. Now, we will be gospel-saturated in all that we do. Fourthly, we will be passionate for the unreached peoples of the world. Paul gets kind of up close and personal and really gets in our business here as he moves through the last of these verses. And start with me down there at verse 19. By, By the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God... From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. That, by the way, is modern-day Albania, former Yugoslavia area. From that area and all around, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And so it is my ambition, my driving passion to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it's written, and he he quotes that Isaiah passage, and then verse 22 and, and verse 23. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. I want to come to Rome I want to come visit you. I've got bigger and better plans, or not better plans, but bigger plans and additional plans. But, but I had work to do. Uh, th- th- there were people that, that needed to have access. Hear me now. There were people that needed to have access to the gospel. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... I'm going to come see you. Wait a minute. Stop. Time out. Paul, are you telling us that you have planted all the churches that need to be planted in those regions? And Paul would say, I'm not saying that. Paul, are are you saying that everyone 
who needs to hear the gospel has heard the gospel in those regions. And Paul would say, I'm not saying that. Well, then, Paul, what are you saying? And here's what Paul's saying. Now, hear me. There is at least now a gospel witness there. But there is not a gospel witness everywhere. And it is the everywheres where the gospel has not yet gone that I'm absolutely compelled and driven to go. Now, he's not going to take the entire church at Rome with him physically, but in a sense, he's going to take them with him. Because he's going to stop at Rome and he's going to stop there for some rest, for some fellowship, and for some reinforcement. He's going to leave there with, with prayer support. He's going to leave there with financial support. And yes, God is going to lay upon the heart some of those persons at Rome that they need to go with him to get the gospel to those who've never heard the name of Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier, more than half the world's population has still not yet heard the name of Jesus, or most likely they've not heard the name of Jesus. Why? Why? With all of our financial resources, with all of our technology, with our, our massive numbers, again, most of you or many of you are Southern Baptists in here, we've got 45,000 churches. We've got bragging 14 million members. Now, we can't find a bunch of them, so it's more like probably 8, but even then, 8 million Eight million? I mean, that's a lot of folks. And then you bring in other evangelical communities. My goodness. Why are we still where we are? And I have to be real careful here. Because it would be easy at this point to really send some of you on a, a massive, over-the-edge guilt trip. And that's not my intent. But my intent is to make you aware. Is that fair enough? I, I don't want to guilt you. But I don't want you to leave uninformed, okay? So here's the problem, or at least part of the problem. Men. Men. Men are the problem. Men are the reason. See, that's a pretty, pretty severe accusation. You, you, you might want to back that up. All right, let me give it a shot. A couple of years ago, I called the International Mission Board. It's... Uh, Richmond, and I said, I'm just curious, what's the, the male-female breakdown in terms of missionaries among our 5,000 missionaries? And they said, well, that's an awful big number for us to delve into. And I said, well, all right, let's, let's, let's back it off. Let's take the journeyman program. If you're not familiar, the journeyman program is this. You graduate from college. You're not married. You can go on the international mission field for two years through the International Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention. And listen to me, unlike many other mission organizations, you don't have to raise a dime. We foot the bill. That's what the cooperative program in Lottie Moon and other things Southern Baptists do. We foot the whole bill. Not only that, you even get a small salary. And you're not going for five or ten or twenty or the rest of your life. You're just going for two years. Just two. And so I get a phone call back and I'm informed that in... 2010, just two years ago, two and a half years ago, we had on the international mission field 331 journey girls and 126 journey men. I then got a call from Gordon Fort, who at that time was the vice president for overseas operation, and Gordon called to inform me about the area of West Africa, and he said, West Africa... 
most difficult region in the world for us to get missionaries into or to get missionaries to go. It's dangerous. It's very poor. Radical Islam dominates. And so your, your, your life is going to be pretty much on the line if you go into West Africa. But he said, but God's been good. And in the last several years, particularly among young people, journeymen, young warriors for Christ, we've seen an influx. And so in 2010, we had 50 journeymen serving the Lord in West Africa, 48 females and two males. Last year, updated statistics, total breakdown of singles, 533 females, 167 males. And guys, just hear my heart. We're condemning Muslim men to hell without a witness if we don't go. Because a woman can't share the gospel with a man in a Muslim context. It's just not allowed. And so if they go, they can share the gospel with women and, and children. But if we don't go, the men will, will not have the opportunity. Unless their wife is led and then. But you see all the dynamics of, of what happens there. It's many times not a, not a pretty picture at all. And again, I don't know why. I, I have thought about this for years. I've talked to lots of people about this, and I've never received a good answer. I don't think we have one. I mean, it's not new, by the way. If you go back to the cross, who was there? Women. John was there, but the rest were women. It's about a one-to-three ratio then, too. And who were the first ones to the empty tomb? Women. And so there's been something about our sisters throughout history that there's this, this commitment and devotion and passion that we lack, and I'm not sure why, but I think bottom line, it is a hard issue. It's a matter of what we really believe is important and what really matters to us. I, I was either asleep or daydreaming. I was in bed one night. You know, you're sometimes in between. You know, you're kind of conscious. You're not conscious. You're you're thinking. You're daydreaming, and so I don't know which it was. But but the Lord brought something to my mind by way of a kind of an illustration. I'm going to throw it out at you. I've used it in a number of places. It's always very interesting to see the response I get, and so it'll be interesting for me to see as I begin to move toward closing what kind of response I get here. It's, it's very clear to you all by now that, that among your panel, there, there's some pretty serious uh, athletic fans up here. I mean, you know, I, 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 am, uh, uh, I know who's playing the Super Bowl tomorrow night, and uh, I know that uh, the Redskins won't be there, and Dallas will probably never be there ever again. Um, I do believe that Duke is the evil empire and um, that, uh, that Steve Spurrier is probably the Antichrist as what he has done to Georgia all these years. And so I, uh, I, I, I'm aware of the, the Atlanta, any Atlanta Brave fans in here. Uh, I'm aware of 14 consecutive National League Eastern titles and only one World Series. I'm aware of the fact that being an Atlanta boy, we've won one championship in all of our teams in all of my lifetime. I mean, that's just not good. It's very painful, but then it's very humbling, and obviously I need to be humbled. And so God is just pulverizing me right now with my sports teams bringing humility into my life. And so here I am thinking one, one night, either dreaming or daydreaming, imagine if God were to give you or me a son, and God were to say to you, I'm going to let you pick the course 
for your son's life. I'm going to let you make the call on where his life is going to go. Now, I'm going to give you one of two options. Just one of two options. Option number one, and right now, think in terms of your favorite college team, okay? And we'll stay in football, although I know uh, some of you may want to gravitate toward basketball. Let's just stay with football. So you think of your favorite college football team, and here's what God says. I'm going to give you a son who's going to be a four-time All-American. I'm going to give you a son that's going to lead your college team to four unprecedented consecutive national championships. I'm going to give you a son who will be a first-round draft choice in the NFL, and he will be a perennial all-pro. He will make hundreds of millions of dollars. He will go into the Hall of Fame. He will be famous, and that's plan one. That's, that's option one for your son's destiny. Sounds pretty good for some of us whose, whose teams have not experienced anything. In fact, nobody's ever experienced four consecutive. Even Alabama's just three out of four, okay? Option number two. Your son's going to be a missionary. And your son is going to leave America, and I'm going to deposit him in a faraway place among an unreached people group where he will live, where he will serve, and where he will die. He'll be buried there. And by the time his life has run its course, you just need to understand very few people other than me will know that he is there. But... Because he went, there will be in heaven literally tens of thousands worshiping my son because he went. Now you make the call. I was at a church one time here in the Raleigh area. I used that illustration. Afterwards, a woman, her husband is such a Panty waist, gutless wimp, whoever he is, he wouldn't come. But he sent his wife. Don't, don't you love men that send their wives to bring their message? I mean, it's just a, just a, a sissy, a wimp, a punk, and other things I could think, but it's not appropriate. So we just, you know. But dear God. And she sends, he sends her and she says, My husband wanted you to know that he would pick the football career for our son, wouldn't even hesitate. And by the way, she had tears running down her face because I think she would have picked something different. That illustration can really kind of get under your skin. It's an easy way to have a a gut check, a, a heart check about what really, really matters to you. James Frazier, I mentioned him when we were having our panel discussion, made a different choice. James Frazier was a honors engineer student in London, and he was an accomplished concert pianist. He had an incredible career mapped out for him that was going to make him famous, and he was also going to make a lot of money. But in his senior year, a classmate gave him a little gospel booklet entitled, Do Not Say. And he read that booklet, and it altered the course of his life, just like this conference may alter the course of some of your lives. You see, James Frazier read that little book, Do Not Say, and instead of staying in London 
and becoming an engineer and this concert pianist, he moved to the Himalaya Mountains in the western part of China where he worked among an unreached people group known as the Lisu, L-I-S-U, the Lisu people group. I, I call them the Chinese hillbillies because they live up in the mountains 10,000 feet and higher in villages scattered throughout that mountain range. And James Frazier goes there as a young 20-something, and he will stay there until his early 50s when he will contract cerebral meningitis and die literally overnight. James Frazier would be there for five years before he would see a single convert. On more than one occasion, he was robbed and nearly murdered. And his daughter in that book, Mountain Rain, shares that her father became so discouraged and so despondent at the lack of response to what he was doing there that he considered suicide and on more than one occasion shared that he stood on the precipice of a cliff and looked down into those deep valleys and thought, wouldn't it just be wiser just to end it all? I've obviously missed God's will for my life, even if he exists at all. But he stayed, and God honored. And today, most conservative estimate, it is estimated that there are more than 300,000 Lisu believers in the Himalaya Mountains because of the life and the ministry of James O. Frazier. He didn't live a wasted life. His was a life well spent. You say, my goodness, Danny, what did he read that grabbed his heart so, so tightly? And here it is, and I close. Just listen very carefully. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and look as of course he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain. Most of the excuses we are accustomed to make now with such good conscience we will be wholly ashamed of them then. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to look into the face of my Savior with gladness and joy and say, Lord, this, this worthless sinner, out of gospel gratitude for what you did for me in Jesus, gave my life to the things you gave your life to, getting the gospel to the nations. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. The Great Commission is a command to be obeyed. My prayer for us is that we will be obedient to the final marching orders of King Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage, one that convicts me every time I look at it. I thank you that Paul puts before us a challenge to never lose sight of the nations, and in particular those who have never heard. Lord, I don't believe, and, and I would be misunderstood this morning, I don't believe that you call every single one of us to leave America and go to the nations. I do believe you're calling more than our going. 
I do believe that. Uh, I also believe, Lord, you call every one of us to be a missionary. I think Spurgeon's right. We're to be missionaries. We're to be missionaries where we live in sharing the gospel. We're to be missionaries where we live in praying for our neighbors and for the nations. And, Lord, we're to be missionaries in the way that we give, seeing, Lord, that we invest our lives in those things that matter most, getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, I want to be a Great Commission Christian who is a part of a Great Commission church that's involved in a monstrous Great Commission movement that can only be explained by a Great Commission God who has indeed called out His children to go and take the gospel. And Lord, You have promised us that around the throne there will be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So Lord, we recognize this day that You're going to accomplish Your purposes whether we're involved in it or not. But, Lord, I want to be involved in what you're involved in. I want to be about the business of your business. I want to be doing what you have called me to do. And so, Lord, as long as you give me life and breath, may I have the same heart for the nations that compelled you to send your Son to live among the nations and to die and to rise and to ascend and to promise to come again. And may we, Lord, be found faithful to carry out your final marching orders until we see you again. In death or in life, may we be found faithful. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.